This is Watkins. Welcome with Bridget Fetessy. I'm Bridget Fetessy, and you are welcome. <laughs> <laughs> You know the drill. Please subscribe, rate, comment, share, reach out, tell your friends, send smoke signals, whatever. We love your feedback and we want to hear from you. Our sponsor this week is BridgetFetacy.com, a lovely place for all fetacy-related merch. This week, we have Nathan Edmondson. He's an American writer known for the comic series Who is Jake Ellis and the activity for Image Comics, as well as The Punisher and Black Widow for Marvel Comics. He is also the co-owner of Allied Special Operations Experience Company and the co-founder of EDGE, Ecological Defense Group Incorporated, a nonprofit devoted to the innovative conservation of African wildlife. And we do talk about his writing, but we really get into his conservation work in Africa. It's fascinating how he got into it. It's a little bit heartbreaking and also just eye-opening in terms of what we as normies just sitting here in traffic or in America doing our dishes can do to help in a situation that sometimes feels helpless. So listen up. I'm here with Nathan Edmondson, head of president of EDGE, correct? That's right. Writer. Tell us what you do. Tell us about yourself. I'm the president of Edge and a writer. You okay. <laughs> I did something right in the first two minutes. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm a, uh, a writer of things like comics and screenplays and uh, soon to be some books. And then most of my time, most of my effort now, though, is uh, running the nonprofit Edge. Mm-hmm. Or, Tell us about Edge. So Edge is a, uh, we're based here in Los Angeles primarily. Um, we are devoted to the innovative preservation of African wildlife. Um, so we are a counter poaching and conservation organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work mostly in South Africa, but we're not limited to South Africa. We're doing some other things in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, especially with the uh, rhino war. So okay. elephant and rhino poaching and, and uh, preservation and um, look at developing uh, community efforts, bringing new technologies and then using um, – U.S. special operations tactics and expertise to develop counter-poaching initiatives. So, yeah. that's So how did you, a writer who's done comics and television shows, end up doing this? So... um, yeah, it's 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 a kind of been a bit of a weird journey. We um, like weird journeys here on Watkins. Welcome. Yeah, that's what we're all about. I, you know, I had some background where I, I did a little bit of work, kind of tangentially with the special operations community, and so as I had friends there and was aware of some things going on, and we had a business we put together in Las Vegas where we were working and doing some training and some things. So I was doing that concurrently with uh, writing after I'd moved out to L.A. to you know keep pursuing, you know, writing fiction, writing books, writing all this. And then I heard about, and I'm trying to remember, I had a friend call me and tell me there were some guys from this, uh, this community who were doing some counter poaching work. And I thought it was, uh, I was just interested. I didn't really have, I mean, I love animals. I love wildlife, but you know, it really wasn't on my sort of docket to get over to Africa and do any kind of work. So these are just like retired special ops guys. Yes. Um, basically, well, in this or are case, they just like 
guys in America who want to be special ops oh, no, guys. We, we're, we're very, uh, we are co-founded with and, you know, uh, uh, run by uh, guys from very specific, with, you know, with, with very real backgrounds. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm just and, imagining like a bunch of dudes who played video games. You were like, we're going to go save the rhinos. Well, there is plenty of that actually. <laughs> and, we, and we get those emails and, you know, even guys who say, you know, hey, I have this background or I served and they may have a very legitimate military resume. I want to go kill some poachers. It's well, that's not what we do. Right. And, uh, and, and the guys who have tried to do that, it usually doesn't end up going very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we, the, the value of working with guys at the level that we do is they're not imperialistic. They go over there and spend more time listening than talking and right. slowly develop, you know, the, the plans and, and solutions. So, um, you know, we are very fortunate in kind of the way we were founded. Well, anyway, to get back to that part of the story is I heard about some guys over there, went over just to kind of check it out. I think looking for a story. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. I, but I just sort of went because why not? Why yeah. not? We're writers. And, yeah. Got to do it. And, 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 you know, getting to go. So anyway, I, I end up in Kruger National Park and I don't think I could have pointed to it on a map before going, but it's literally the front lines of, uh, of poaching in Africa right mm-hmm. now, the, the front lines of the rhino war. And, um, Coming out of that experience, we realized that these efforts that these guys were doing kind of on contract uh, didn't have longevity. Like there was no plan to sustain these, move forward. So I talked with the people involved and we ended up founding EDGE, uh, the eco defense group, to carry these efforts on. So what's unique about us is that unlike somebody who did wake up and say, I want to go save the rhinos, you know, you end up running over there, but nobody's asked you. You know, right. it's like, well, thank you. Please hand us some money or, you know, so we weren't founded out of, uh, we were founded out of need. Right. Um, we weren't founded out of a bunch of people, out of a cause. Like we, right. we got together and said, we're going to go save runners. We found ourselves in the right place at the right time to make a difference and bring some really badly needed solutions uh, and, and in a position. So in a way we were sort of handed, you know, a Formula One race car and then said, you know, the, the keys are handed to me and said, now figure out how to drive it. Right. So, yeah. So, I, and, and since then, I've just been learning everything possible about the world. We have really uh, extraordinary access, great partners. And I spend a lot of time over there now. And then the rest of my time is spent, I guess, fundraising and building a coalition mm-hmm. and sort of uh, trying to develop some some projects. So what were some of the most surprising things that you learned as somebody who was just basically a normie and entered into the world? Of, about poaching, maybe some of the myths that aren't true or some of the things that you never would have expected that are true. I think the thing that reached out and grabbed me the most, and this is not something that uh, most tourists would be exposed to, which is part of how unique my first experience was, is is being in the is, is seeing those who whose life, you know, they live this life. They live in the park, they they. These wait. are anti-poachers. Uh, well, they, or they what? Who's they? I guess. Well, what I mean is that there is a part of the world for whom this doesn't exist on TV. It literally is their backyard. Conservation is a little bit different. For example, from here to say, well, we want to protect elephants, right? right? And to them to say, you know, but I want to drive my car and have this street and have a fence and have a garden, you know. But if you're there and you have a garden and you're living in an area with elephants, you can't become too attached to the fence, right? right? Because <laughs> yeah. the only other thing you can do is shoot the elephant, right? So you know, it, it's living in this world. To me, I think my eyes are just open to realize, like. Well, this this is not something that just exists on safari. This is part of somebody's life backyard. And, yeah, uh, and and so that you know struck me in a way, and I and I said I really 
I want to support these people, you know, and I, frankly, I'm envious. I want, I want, I want some of this life. Right. Um, and also that they literally risk their lives. I mean, we have these, uh, there's, there's, uh, uh, a number of areas we're working to protect in Limpopo, uh, through a security initiative. And we left a couple guys, they have a, this, this reserve is about a hundred rhino on it. And we, um, we left it in a full moon when we flew out and there's not, you know, they're, they're we're kind of just hoping and praying that a gang of well-armed poachers don't show up because if they do, it's all over, you know? And, and so like in some of these senses, we go over there and we think, Oh, we're doing great work. But it becomes very real when you're sitting on the plane headed back thinking, yeah, this trip may be over for us for this week, but for them, you know, literally every night under full moon is like, uh, you know, is, is a night that you hope both the animal and the, the, and its protectors live through the night. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the other thing that struck me was, you know, I, I think the marketing, we even see this when we were talking to some PR people in South Africa recently for this Red Bull thing we did, they said, you know, people are really jaded. They're tired of hearing about how bad the poaching crisis is, but give them something positive, you know, to embrace. Mm -hmm. And, I think that most of the world is that way. I mean, the media didn't even talk about the last male, the the last male of the northern white rhino um, dying, which means that that species, that subspecies, is is extinct. I saw it. I mean, I did see the media talk about it, but only after it was a fait accompli, right? Right. You know, the time to have cared about it would have been <laughs> right. you know, when there were about thirty animals left and it right. could have been repopulated. Right. So, you know, in that sense, like extinction is very final and it's very real. And when you're looking there, literally seeing as the, the rangers are coming in, we found two more carcasses, you know, we found another uh, orphan bait, this and this, and it's like the 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 clock is ticking and it's ticking really quickly. So it became very, very tangible and real to me this idea that that we're marching towards extinction with uh, uh or to quote you know the title of the excellent louis ahoyo series racing toward extinction and you can see it you know you you can see it in in the the rounds expended the brass found and the carcasses that the vultures circle with the rhinos every day over there what are the numbers without it in front of me i'm going to be a little uh uh, week, but basically the you know there was a there was a rhino war in the seventies uh, eighties, um, uh, and then the numbers became strong again until around two thousand six two thousand seven, partly due to the uh, increase in cancer rates in south Southeast Asia and the return of traditional Chinese medicine. Other things drove the demand for rhino horn. Is that what they use it for? Yeah, it's it's both a like a virility aid mm -hmm. or a cancer cure. Does it actually work? No, it's it's carrot. It's like your fingernails. So it, it has no value other than the perceived and traditional, you know, so, uh, and traditional Chinese medicine is kind of making a comeback and, right. and, and especially in like white collar, uh, you know, circles. So the numbers exploded and I, I, I think right now it's about three a day. Rhino were killed in South mm -hmm. Africa alone. They, uh, there's something like 20, less than 2,500 black rhino left in wow. the world, less than 10,000 white rhino and uh, you can basically set a clock to the extinction of both right now. Wow. Um, and which is, you know, absurd because literally you can solve this problem. You know, there's enough money and resources in the world to solve this problem overnight. But the reality is that it's very difficult. It's very complicated. It's very corrupt. And uh, rhino horn right now is the most valuable material on the planet. Ounce for ounce worth more than diamonds, heroin, platinum. Um, and all, you know, and, and of course that's just talking about rhinos. Now rhinos are an umbrella species. Most of Africa, so if you protect them, you protect everything else. Like obviously mm. as you head north, 
Uh, elephants are more in target, but you know, rhino, lion, elephant—they're all pangolin are all being hunted to extinction or poached rather. And I guess from my perspective, and I think what I I do, I don't know that people are jaded or cynical. I feel like that's the wrong impression. I think people feel helpless. I don't think it's like a jaded, I don't care. I think it's a feeling. My my perception from my friends and people I talk to, and I know myself even hearing this, it's like, what can you even do? Right. It feels so far away and it feels so, I feel very helpless to do anything other than have a conversation with somebody like you and give you you uh, a voice and give people that you work with money and resources. But other as just a lay person, you're, I think you're subjected to, you know, our generation in general, I don't, I think we're around the same age. We were that generation that grew up with all the starving orphan, you know, ads that were on constantly of the babies. And I think it, you get desensitized to it. Right. You know, it feels far away. I have, I, I sponsor three kids and people always make fun of me for it because there's this whole anti kind of NGO. I think if people are cynical, they're cynical about NGOs. They're cynical about the nonprofit organizations. I was Mm -hmm. on working on farms up North and the stories people told me about Greenpeace and the uh, other organizations about like big NGO, as they called it, right. are they are they do make you kind of jaded about how well if I get you know am I helping? And people have such a horrible impression of PETA. I mean, <laughs> it just feels like for the and one of the questions we got on Twitter actually was, um, and I'll just ask it now since we're here is how does a normie like myself or somebody just sitting in America help. Yeah. Well, a lot to unpack there, but I think you're, you're essentially right. And I don't want to get into the weeds of sort of this organization is effective. This one isn't. And and it's, I don't always think it's necessarily that, that simple, but certainly when NGOs grow to a certain size, it's very difficult to, you know, as a donor, right. To see where your dollars go. Mm -hmm. And then there's an infrastructure that grows, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, which uh, capacity is important for NGOs. And, you know, it used to be that, that donors didn't understand that as well as they do now. That is that people have to be paid in order to do the work. But I think that you want, you know, as a, uh, one of the pieces of advice I got when, when starting on this was to treat every donor as an investor, Mm -hmm. you know, that uh, especially when you're talking about people who are high net worth, but even down to the $50, Mm -hmm. $500 donors Mm -hmm. to say, you know, okay, you have to give money to charity this year. You gave money to charity last year. What was your return on that investment? Where did your dollars go? What did you see? And Mm -hmm. ultimately, you know, what did you feel? And so it, it, one of the issues, you know, people feeling helpless sitting at home is that there's, and that was the case with me too, is uh, it took me going over there to feel a connection and, right. and not just to feel a connection, but to feel like, oh, and here is a direct, literally somebody asking me for help on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, here's how you can continue to help us. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, and we hear it all the time. There's people over there uh, working on the ground, working on the front lines and some NGO will come over and say, here, we want to give you money and resources for this. And they're kind of like, uh, okay, thanks. Cause they don't want to turn it away, but, but it's not what they need. And it's not what they right. asked for. This so, you hear a lot about. Uh, about Americans or even just organizations coming into a community and it's, it's not actually helpful. Yeah. And I don't, I I don't, again, I don't want to be too critical because there's many that, that are. Oh no, totally. But I think for a, somebody looking to find how they can help and feel a part of it, you have to find a group 
that you understand that you feel a connection to. And so I think that one of the things that we try to do is, is really bridge that gap. Right. Uh, you know, marketing is important, but it's not just about sort of singing the song and dancing the dance. It's about really connecting people and helping them to understand, like in our case, like, Hey, this is what we have been asked to do. And here's how, here's the, the solution we're going to deliver, you know, to the problem that's been presented to us. And so, and, and sometimes that's like in one of the parks we were asked, can you build playgrounds? Mm. You know, but the development of the youth in that community is hugely important because mm-hmm. they're on literally on the front lines of the rhino war. And so as part of that, we said, okay, we want to do that. Now, what are some things we can put in that playground? And also what are, we started a photography and art club with them, you know, to help them look at the wildlife in their backyard in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. Right. So, you know, the goodwill that we build, the, the, uh, um, just kind of giving them, you know, something to enjoy in that world that they can look at. You know, all of that is, is important that we are, we are becoming a part of that community in a way. So anyway, to, to answer your question in terms of what people can do, like the obvious easy thing is, is money, right? right? Is, is the, all of this has a cost. All of it is expensive. Right. We do need donation. We need money. We need support. But the, what I like, I don't like to sort of accept a donation. I like to build a relationship. Yeah. Because I'm going to burn out if I'm chasing dollars. Yeah. For I'd rather have somebody who knows what we're doing, mm-hmm. who understands it. And also some of the stuff is difficult for us to advertise, especially mm-hmm. when you're bringing, you know, elite military and, and <laughs> yeah. things like that. And it's, it's hard to, you know, we do a pretty good job because we have excellent photographers and videographers, but some of it is a little hard to advertise. If I get somebody on the inside who understands, but I would say if, if somebody, you know, sort of wakes up and says, it just hit me that this animal, this species will be extinct in our lifetime if I do nothing. And I don't want that to happen on my watch. Right. You know, then I would say two things. One, educate yourself and also understand that there's a lot of bullshit out there. Right. Um, and then two, which means educate yourself by talking to the front lines, you know, talk to people who are there or at least hear from people who are there. And then, uh, you know, and then be very discerning with your money. So look at, you know, the big organizations do things that only big organizations can do. Right. World Wildlife Fund can do things that nobody else can do. Mm-hmm. Right. And they they are going to work with uh, partners that only work with, you know, somebody their size. But if you look at somebody like us, who's we, we will never grow to that size. That's not sort of in our, you know, that's not in our DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can say, OK, I, I really care about this aspect of it. And I want to have a, a real clarity of vision and seeing how my dollars go are used effectively. And then I not, not only do you have the satisfaction then, but you've become invested in the evolution of this cause. Right. Cause now you can say when somebody else says to you, say, ah, here's what I've done and here's why it's working. Now you're informed. Now you're part of it and you're no longer disconnected. So I would say again, treat it like an investment. When you say there's a lot of bullshit out there, how does, how does somebody real, how did you weed through all that? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we, we, a lot of there, it, it is very easy to become imperialistic in conservation work. Um, mm-hmm. and I think that a lot of the partners we talk to over there, there's a little bit of fatigue of people coming in telling us how to do what they do. And, you know, in, in that way, it kind of, the way it hits the media, the way it's sort of marketed can be, this is how we want to solve this cause rather than this is how they want this, you know, this is how they need us to work with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, without getting again too in the weeds in it, that's uh, kind of an abstract answer. But I think that, yeah, I mean, I think I, I read as much source material as you can from the ground rather right. than stuff that is filtered through the, you know, media people on Twitter that you follow. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like anything like go see what it's, you know, go, go see what it's, uh, 
what the word is from there. I mean, one of the things that we've done recognizing this problem, and this is fairly shameless, but I also think that this has become an important part of our cause is we launched a podcast. Right. So I think we're eight, nine episodes in this week. So it's the Edge Conservation Podcast. And part of it was because um, – and and now it's grown beyond Africa, right? It's conservation doers, the top conservationists around the world that we can find. Uh, uh, you know, a woman who's working with penguins in Antarctica, somebody working in the Congo with coffee, you know. But there's also a lot of people that we're talking to in Africa. And the reason is we meet all these people and recognize that, you know, we are not the solution to every problem. Mm-hmm. But if we can be a bit of a platform for them, then I think that it helps us with a holistic approach because right. we're constantly hearing and broadcasting whether in some we don't agree with, some we're learning from, you know, and that we're taking those voices directly from the ground and giving them a platform because we realized there's there's nothing like that. Exactly what you're saying. Like, how do I go and get that info? Yeah. We said, well, we'll go get it for you. Right. And we're, it's unfiltered. We just put that person straight up. This isn't, you know, the edge version of them, or it's just, we just exactly what you're doing here. It's just interviews with people doing radical lifelong wildlife conservation. Right. So that's been helpful to me. Like every new one that I listen to, I'm learning. Right. You know, and I'm I'm learning things about there was one we had for this amazing woman, Jessica Babich, who is in one of our areas of operation and runs this group called Save the Waterbird Rhino. I've met her, I've talked to her, I'm inspired by her, but when I listened to her episode, I learned a lot about how to approach things over there. Mm. You know, it, it really is informed the way I'm waking up at three thirty AM to start doing my work, you know. Yeah. So I, I so yeah, I mean that's something that we recognize, in other words, that is a whole. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, because I wouldn't even know when you say when so, and I hear this a lot from people who are experts and even people in journalism, they'll be like, you know, you just got to weed through the bullshit. And I'm like, well, OK, how? How do I know it's bullshit if right. I don't know? And I'm I, I'm like you. I generally try to go to source. I follow, for instance, there's the Ebola crisis is going on over there and I follow a doctor on Twitter on the ground over there. And she's so informed. It's so the way it gets translated from what I read from her to uh, uh, the media is when you see those. So I always tell people to kind of seek out. Twitter is a great resource if you know how to use it. So you can seek these people out directly and like the people who are on your podcast, for example, and you can stay up to date by just following them on Twitter. Sure. I'd like to take a quick break so we can talk about our sponsor. Is your woke friend annoying? Have you been canceled? Do you want a blue check and feel you deserve one? Do you watch Dumpster Fire and enjoy all of the catchphrases? Well, you can get all of your merch needs for Fetacy at BridgetFetacy.com. Shirts, hoodies, mugs, and canceled neck gaiters. There's a whole bunch of new stuff and a lot of old goods you probably never even noticed before. We also have beanies, sweatshirts, and oft request capitalism always wins mugs and hoodies. Just go buy some stuff and support your favorite podcast. We'll have walk-ins welcome merch coming soon. That's at BridgetFetacy.com. B-R-I-D-G-E-T-P-H-E-T-A-S-Y.com. I remember when I was uh, uh, studying art history, and one of the the, the emphasis of, from my professor was uh, emphasis. <laughs> one of the things that was often emphasized was all of our research had to be primary source. Mm. So, and and that in art history, that's 
you know, it will like, in it's any not easy. It's, it's very difficult. But once you start to get into that rhythm and realize what it means to look for it, one of the things that struck me though, in, in that, in those classes was, um, that there's an answer to everything, you know? So when people are like, uh, you know, talking about the, the, the construction of the pyramids and the great mysteries of the Mayans or, well, actually mm-hmm. there's answers to most of that, you know, mm-hmm. but, but you have to know how to, you know, how to sift through and seek it. And I think that there's a lot of people with a lot of solutions on the ground who live, literally with elephants trampling their fence every day. And if you just listen to them, you know, they're going to tell you what works and what doesn't. Here's an example. Our partner over there, the Roy Hintzman uh, Conservation Research Unit, they have these uh, eight wonderful elephants that we interact with that uh, were rescued from culling and and provide amazing opportunities for research. And uh, they're really unique in that, like, you know, normally they interact up close with an elephant or not, or not normally, but very often it's, uh, there's, there's some abuse, the, the animal, especially in Asia, they've been captured. They've been, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, they, they were raised and have served in counter poaching and other just extraordinary behavior research. And <clears throat> there was, I was talking to, to Sean Hinsman, who's also on our podcast over there when people were talking about the beehive solution to elephants. So stepping back a little bit, elephants are a continent wide problem. For Africa, they're they're perceived by many on the ground to just be a nuisance, a pest. They're destructive, mm, like deer. Yeah, they're they're, except, <laughs> they're the you know, deer, deer of they, Africa. They, they, they can step on your car, right? Yeah. So, uh, and the, and the, and, and all they're not going to eat your garden, but they will kill you, right. right? People die, so that's they call it human elephant conflict is a big problem. So, especially because they've cut up what would otherwise be the the very wide natural areas, and now they're relegated to reserves and parks where they become overcrowded. So, elephant management. Is is a is a bit of a crisis right now. Right. So, finding solutions to human elephant conflict is one of is an ongoing you know is, is an ongoing issue. How do you stop humans and elephants from crossing into each other? And mm. for a farmer who says, "I need to feed my family, my town. I have this garden, and this elephant comes and eats everything, and I can't feed my family." It's easy for him. I shoot the elephant right? or I don't want him to stumble on. And then my kid's out there and he kills my kid because he spooked him and tramples him or, you know, something like this is a, a, an issue where it's fairly simple for the farmer. It's also fairly simple for the elephant. That smells good. I want that. Right. I'm going to get it, you know, and, mm-hmm. and nothing gets in my way. So one of the solutions that was advertised was uh, beehives. It was like, uh, if you put beehives up, uh, elephants don't like bees. It keeps them away from the farms. And I knew one group who granted a huge amount of money into investing in beehives for yeah. this. So I called, I was talking with Sean. I said, have you, have you heard of this? Like, what is the deal? He says, well, let me tell you what I think. He said, uh, say that you have a 7,000 hectare farm, right? You would need beehives every, I don't know, however many meters, right? Five meters at least. That means that the number of beehives you need for that farm are probably 10,000 times the natural population of bees for here. <laughs> right. Also, elephants are very active at night and bees aren't. So he right. said, I don't see this as being effective. If you had just come to people on the ground to, you know, they probably could have told you. Another one was a chili peppers. People say, if you can dust chili peppers, you'll keep elephants off of things. He went and he got the elephants love oranges. So he took oranges, went to his elephants and he injected them, dusted them, rolled them in chili pepper, nothing. Nothing stopped those elephants from eating. So he could very easily say, like, these are not actual solutions, mm-hmm. you know. And yet a lot of money, a lot of, you know, tweeting, a lot of look at this wonderful organic way to stop elephants went around. But And I, I could be wrong. There may be some areas where it was effective, but I know in that conversation it was like, you know, this is, this is not a real solution. So. Right. This is such an interesting point, too, about how – you know, even poaching when you you really can't talk about poaching without talking about well, 
a lot of this seems like desperation. It's not like they want to go poach these rhinos. I don't think they're just waking up being like, I love killing rhinos. It seems like it's born out of necessity. And so I feel like, yeah, you can address the problem of poachers, but how do you address it without addressing the systemic conditions that create the need to poach? Right. Well, and that's one of the reasons that we do the art, photography, gardening, and other community things. Because I don't believe you can work on one side of the fence and not the other. Mm -hmm. If the community doesn't support it, then, you know, it's kind of like you you can police the gangs in Chicago, but unless you're actually... Working with the gangs. Yeah. Yeah. And and the communities and the kids and churches, like, you know, you're just going to replace the ranks. You know, first of all, I think there's maybe two especially different kinds of poaching one is poaching you know animals off of farms for food you know we need the meat you know they're killing mm. it but the bigger epidemic obviously is killing for ivory or for horn mm. or, or lion paws or whatever they're they're doing and in that case yeah absolutely i mean the the financial incentive to go kill a rhino like for it's know, worth months the rest. And months of of salary it's absolutely worth the risk most of the wildlife to, to most communities in, in areas with a poaching crisis are worth, frankly, they're worth more dead than alive. It's that simple. Right. Um, elephants, you, you know, they're free. If you go over there, people are giving elephants away. The problem is nobody will take them. Right. Right. Uh, rhino, nobody wants to take on a rhino right now. It's too much of a liability. You know, you take on a, it's a huge security risk. Your family may be killed. You know, mm. your security now has to be upped in wow. extraordinary ways. So just on that side, the cost exceeds whatever the value may be. And then to the potential poacher, right? Uh, and then there's a, the, it's the same, you know, like the financial incentive, like what otherwise, what good is this animal to them? What are they getting out of it? Now, if you have tourism jobs, for example, where I'm employed by a place that gets tourism because people come on safari with these animals, right? There's a value. And uh, if you say, uh, okay, tourism supports this community. The other thing you can do, and Jessica talks about this uh, much more eloquently than I could in her episode on the uh, the podcast is that if you can connect to the communities the fact that poaching is part of drugs, part of arms trafficking, part of human trafficking, Mm -hmm. uh, kidnapped kids and poached animals are part of the same syndicates and enterprise, Mm -hmm. you can get the community to start to resist some trends that way too. So education works on that front. We put about... I don't know, 30 or 40 kids on safari vehicles probably took them about five kilometers from where they lived to see rhino and paint. We had a famous artist, uh, Rob Pryor from here in LA came over and he taught the kids to paint the elephants and rhinos, brought them art supplies. All those kids got out and I asked them, how many of you have ever seen a rhino before? Two of them raised their hand. (laughs) Five kilometers. We flew 20,000 miles over, you know, went down there, saw them that morning at breakfast. They came five kilometers, you know, and had never seen one before. I mean, so, you'd be shocked at how many people have never been to Joshua Tree or were born in L.A. Absolutely, right? So, like, and and if if Joshua Tree was being deforested mm-hmm. uh, due to whatever conditions, you know, it asked people to care who haven't been there. But if you've been there, you know, so to these kids, I, I would hope to say that those kids, after sitting in front of those animals, painting them, thinking mm-hmm. about them, now they see it as something different than just this abstract mm-hmm. way to get paid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that little efforts like that will slowly start to invite uh, the next generation into a, a conservationist mindset rather than, you know, that, that, that will deter them from being as easily recruited as poachers. So anyway, that's a circuitous response to your simple observation. But yeah, I, I absolutely think that um, you have to convince and, and not just convince, but make real the value 
if an elephant is going to be cold, if it's got to be cold, right, or a, or a rhino has to be cold, like that money goes to support all kinds of things that they badly need money for in conservation. But if there's an option to take that animal, and there's a huge cost you know, associated with it, and this is where money comes in, right? If, if uh, uh, say, there's an older rhino bull that nobody can keep, and as they get older, they'll attack the younger virile males, which means you've, right. you can That's hurt bad. breeding rhinos. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and so to a lot of people, I say, oh, we have to cull it now, you know, because this is the only way to grow the species. It would be wonderful if you had an investor who wanted to invest in the infrastructure, the security, the tourism elements, everything to take that rhino and make it ambassador for the species. Right. Um, Big Bear Alpine Zoo, just here outside of LA uh, with uh, Bob Cisneros. That's what they are. They are an, uh, a rehab and ambassador zoo. So the animals that can't be rehabbed and put back in the wild become ambassadors mm-hmm. for their species. And Bob is extremely knowledgeable in the difference between sort of pinning up an animal for entertainment and what it means to be an ambassador. And I think that they're, it's hugely expensive, but I think that you can, like the Adventures with Elephants Enterprise and others, make animals ambassadors in ways that you know they continue, they have a new value that right. they wouldn't have had otherwise. So uh, yeah, that's something I'm, I I would love to see more of, but it's it's hard to go over there and tell somebody to do it and not give them the money to make right. it happen. And is there a way to – why doesn't the international – I mean, I know China probably just doesn't give a fuck, but why doesn't the international community pressure China to not want rhinos? <laughs> you know, isn't, isn't there a way you can pressure the people who are encouraging the demand for this? Um, you can, and it's happening. There's a few issues. <laughs> One is there's a it's, lot of corruption in the ranks mm-hmm. all over. China literally doesn't uh, give September. a fuck. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, mean, we, <laughs> I, I don't have very kind things to say, but in, uh, guys, there's just September. so many people. I guess too, if it's if if there's a demand for yeah. rhino in China, it's not like a small country. Well, if there's just, a demand for rhino in China, it could be like twenty. You know, million people, well, a small demand. Yeah, I mean, the the it it's been hugely legitimized, and it's you're talking about thousands of years of tradition. And it's just like pseudoscience. It's not even pseudoscience. It's <laughs> it's, it's literally just fake you know, folklore. Or it's something. like horoscopes. Yeah, it's, a, it's <laughs> but they they uh, in September said that they were going to lift the ban on the import of rhino horn and ivory. China did as a nation, which is huge, and then the international community sort of put pressure on them and they said, okay, well, we're going to delay doing that. Okay. So yeah, they have no interest as, as at least as a government in doing anything to stymie, you know, rhino poaching. I'm what are they going to do when they run out of rhinos? They'll move on to the next thing. I mean, it, but I mean, isn't it the rhino that they want? Yeah. Wouldn't it be in their best efforts? Like, isn't it, it doesn't make sense to me that if this is something that you can find, you can say there's a finite countdown China knows this. Wouldn't it be in their interest to like be breeding these things? Well, and there are efforts like in South Africa, it's legal to trade and harvest rhino horn in the country because you can harvest it harmlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a fan of the practice, but mm-hmm. it, if it gives you know somebody a reason to keep and breed rhino, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. But you can remove a rhino's horn without hurting him. It's just not the way poachers do it mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. One being that... that it, it takes longer. Mm-hmm. You know, they just hack and go. The other being that the few ounces that are beneath the bones of the face are not worth leaving behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you really wanted to, but, it, but it's, it's a black market machine and you can't really, it's kind of like the drug war in the U.S. You can't sort of just even legalizing the trade 
and doing it that way, I don't believe changes poaching. I don't. Right. I don't. I don't mean legalizing it. I just mean it's not like a black market where there is a infinite amount of heroin or cocaine being produced at any given moment all over the world. Right. There's 25, you know, there's a certain number of rhinos. But the demand actually, I think, rises the more rare it becomes because it's more precious. Right. Right. And it's more special that you got right. it. And it's right. more likely to cure your cancer. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, what? <sighs> so is it primarily wealthy people who are buying this? It's both. Um, there's an excellent, actually two things I'd recommend people watch. One is the documentary from the filmmaker Susan Scott and Bonnie DeBod called Stroop, S-T-R-O-O-P, mm-hmm. which means uh, to poach, to strip. It's just hitting streaming platforms right now. I think it's won about every award. It cool. They show every aspect of the rhino. Oh, cool. Trait. It's heartbreaking and awesome and undercover. Uh, also, later today, I'm going to see uh, uh, meet Paul Blackthorne, mm-hmm. uh, the actor and activist who did uh, uh, Save the Rhino Vietnam, a mini doc. And he went over and went on the front lines in Vietnam, which is the primary conduit uh, where most rhino horn is distributed. Interesting. Um, although they just caught a guy. Let's see. He was headed to Dubai with... I think 70 kilo of horn, and then he was going to try from Dubai to get it into Asia. So they're using different routes now that they're monitored. But the point is uh, those two do an excellent job of showing the end users. Interesting. Um, and it's it's in markets. You know, there's a jewelry element to it. Uh, but I think it's both white collar and local traditional like fishing villages, for, you know. Uh. So um, And then there's a lot of international tourists who come in and want to buy it. Right. Um, so and they're, they're now finding it in Russia. I'm not sure that I have a clear picture on what Ivory and Rhino Horn are doing in Russia right now, but mm-hmm. uh, what the markets are. But yeah, I mean, it, this is, you know, they've been, you know, poached and used and turned into jewelry and all of this, both Ivory and Horn for, you know, thousands and oh, thousands yeah. of years. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, when you, you talk about turning the tide on it, like it's a tidal wave you're standing right. against. It's really, really tricky. But this is, again, where the helplessness comes in. Right. And, and I mean, I think that's why, for me, being on the on the ground and looking at, okay, there's 100 rhino on this property. How do we secure them? Mm-hmm. How in Kruger Park can we better enable the rangers so that they're better protected? Body armor, you know, night vision, the things that they training. need. Right. Training. Mm-hmm. All of this. How do and, and then we can step back and say we can see that they're going to win the next firefight. We can see that there's an asymmetric element to their the, to their next engagement that gives them the advantage. It's a measurable because uh, now it's a war. It literally it is a war. AK forty sevens, RPGs are in our wow. parks. And uh, you recently had some rangers here, right? We did. Uh, Edge for the first time in history uh, brought African rangers to train in the U.S. That's amazing. It was very cool. They, How many rangers? Uh, we brought, uh, let's see, there are eight guys who came over, part mm-hmm. of a, a group of uh, 22 special rangers in Kruger National Park. So these guys are going to go and kind of con- be leaders and continue the, uh, there'll be a downward effect of training there to mm-hmm. the others. And ho- we hope to continue this. Uh, but they came over. And again, this is, we said, we've been working over there with them. Edge was founded to carry on the work that was going on with them. And we said, what do you want next? And they specifically said, can we go to the U.S.? Mm-hmm. We want them to train side by side with groups over there. We want them to see what it looks like. And then there were some other inta- like less predictable effects that came out of it. We actually went to the premiere uh, in Glendale of the, or the screening of the, the Stroop film, which these rangers were in. Partly. Oh, okay. um, and I, I talked to the, the head of that group afterwards, and I was surprised because one of the rangers next to me, who was, you know, his, his demeanor is a little more of a badass. He's a little more quiet, a little more. And, and 
he, there's this one moment where this rhino survived a poach and her face is, you know, cut, cut open and they're putting a prosthetic face on her where they're literally screwing screws into her bone and mm. you can see tears coming out of her eyes and the vet who's doing the work is crying and I'm in the theater crying and I look at the guy next to me and he's crying, this ranger. And afterwards I was talking to the, their, I'm going to cry right their now. leader. It's, <laughs> it's brutal. And I told him, uh, I was really shocked to turn and see, you know, see the guy next to me. And he says, you know, one of the best things about this trip has been that they're going to see things through the eyes of the world, how important mm. their work is. They had no idea. They show up and go to work every day. Right. They never get a break. Right. And they turned to us at the end and we talked about it and they said, you know, like the way we had fundraisers, we had dinners and the way people looked at them as if they were the world's greatest heroes. They are. They are. And, and they, what they do, I truly believe they do on behalf of all of humanity. Because mm. if that animal dies on their watch, it's not just them, you know, the animal in their park. That was a species that we all lost. So when they wake up and risk their life, uh, when they go into a firefight to engage poachers, uh, when they run into the bush and there's a buffalo and there's mambas and there's leopards and lions, what they risk every day to protect a species, that's not for them. That's not just for South African National Parks or just for the continent. That's you and I. We benefit from that in a huge way. I mean, I would say it's in, it's like for Mother Earth too. You know, it's it's for us, yes, but it's also just for like nature yeah. in honor of being we're supposed to be stewards of this stuff not you know generally not what humans are known for but that would be a nice turn tide that would turn as if we felt that way i yeah. think and is there corruption within anti-poaching oh there's corruption everywhere the money's there's too much money yeah that's what i was wondering it just yeah. seems like it would be so hard to like you're talking about how these guys are, they would have to believe in their causes being something bigger because I imagine it would be so tempting to turn. Well, I remember asking somebody uh, one time about the Rangers saying, you know, and somebody said, nobody is beyond corruption. You know, right. There's no, there's nobody who they won't attempt to recruit and the money, you know, imagine, and it's the same. Like if you watch the show, the Americans, like everybody mm -hmm. can be turned. Mm -hmm. um, pressures change, you know, somebody gets sick at home, you mm -hmm. don't have the money to pay, mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever formula may begin, then somebody stands there with an amount of money you've never considered holding at once, or they pressure you or they, they blackmail you. I mean, there's stories of, of guys and counter poaching engagements coming up against family members. Um, mm. and guess who the family will side with the one who's bringing home more money. Right. right? So, yeah, I mean, there, there's, but again, like, and and I, I want to be careful not to say that I think any of the rangers we worked with were specifically corruptible, but I want to say that having them come over and experience what they did in the U.S., like I would like to say that there's an added nobility in their own minds to what they do, right? Because you you know you do it day in and day out. You don't think about what it means. Oh, it just seems carcass. like a higher calling. Yeah, yeah, another carcass, another day. It's just another day at work, right? So I think that the more that we can bring to the people on the ground a sense of higher calling thing. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're doing it for us we all the time we're over there and people will say uh, you know thank you so much for coming and doing this thank you thank you and it's like the most absurd thing i ever hear because i'm like, like thank the people who are doing it like, yeah thank you yeah you know, I'm, I'm getting on a plane and going home like you don't get to rest yeah you know i didn't risk my life coming over here you risk your life tonight so i feel like we are fortunate as an organization to be in a position where we can offer something mm -hmm. and i think that we are I don't think it's for everybody 
to get up and go join an organization, go over there and go do this, right? Everybody benefits, but I don't think it's for everybody. I think we were in the right place at the right time to do something effective. And the day that we are no longer able to offer anything, then we go home right. because we're not there for us. So yeah, I mean, the you're right. The corruption is everywhere, but I think you there's a lot of things you can do. Um, and that's where like the international, the eyes of the world can come in and, mm. and pe you know, people will respond to that on the ground. I always uh, think of my very dear friend, Henny from Egypt, who always used to say, you're only as loyal as your options. Yeah. And I do feel like all of us are, you know, put back someone into a corner enough, even no matter what their intentions might be or if they're starving. Yeah. People do. It's survival. Yeah. You know, you can convince yourself of a lot of things if you're trying to survive. It's interesting because I feel like there's this perception of. I, I mean, you say it's kind of imperialist imperialism, but there's also this like white white savior kind of complex when you're. It feels like like Africa has always been that that continent that mm. we're like we have to save it, and I don't. I wouldn't even. The culture is so different. I wouldn't even. I would imagine the only way to try and do anything effective is by working within the culture. Sure. And with the people on the ground and not coming in and saying, here's what we know about the problem and here's how you can fix it. <laughs> and you do. I mean, it, I, I, look, my, my experience in doing this sort of thing is, is very limited, but I, I, you do have to strike a balance because we do have resources that, that they don't have. Exactly. Yeah. And in some cases, that's knowledge. We, yeah. In some cases, you do know how to do it better. You mm -hmm. do have a cure for disease, that mm -hmm. they, you know, uh, and that's, that's not just- You have more training and special ops or something. I think as long as your mind is in the right place, like I never have a sense that, oh, because we have this, it makes us- somehow in any way superior like i said we're not risking our lives mm -hmm. or, or have you ever been overnight you know stayed overnight with them or been on the ground sure i mean what's the most terrifying experience you've had <laughs> the most terrifying well there was getting charged by some lions once that was uh but that was more me being foolish i, I will say <laughs> the, the most terrifying moment i have had over there it was very brief but so there there is one thing over there that scares me more than anything else it's the black mamba you know, leopards can be scary. You go jogging sometimes in areas of leopards, like they're, they're a ninja. You know, you'll never see them coming. Lions are scary just because they're that powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, someone else charged, you know, you, elephants can be scary. You know, every, there's a lot of stuff that can kill you, but there's nothing. You know, I say God made the earth in seven days. When he rested, the devil made the mamba. Mm -hmm. That's what I truly believe. That animal is terrifying and it lost nothing and the, you know normally it's like, oh it's it's venomous but it's delicate it's this but it's slow it's that mamba lost nothing they mm. you know 10 feet long they're massive around they can stand 40 percent of their body off the ground you know if you get bit by one you're told you know you find the biggest tree with the most shade and a good view because that's that's Whoa. where you know, that's where it ends so I was, we were doing this thing fairly recently where we wanted to do a test run of how counter poaching teams react in this, this one area. And basically like, all right, if there's a poach that's happened or a crime that's happened, let's see how the, how you catch them, you know, canine tracking teams, perimeters, like all this stuff. So I volunteered with one of the other local guys. We're going to pretend to be the poachers. We're going to create a spore, like a track. We're going to go run. And so then, uh, and then we gave them like an hour to start coming after us. So. 
this guy and I split up, and then I put socks over my boots to hide the footprints, so, which is one of their tactics. And then one of the first things I did was there was kind of a little dirt road that I, I ran up to the side of it and jumped over it to land on the other side to conceal my footprints over the road, thinking I was being you know clever. When I landed on the other side, I took a step, and there was a mamba that was about as big around as like my upper arm, and it just... I probably missed landing on him by six inches and he just shoot and there's no mistaking what it was. No. And, and yeah. And I, uh, I think I ran for 30 minutes at like Olympic speed after that with pure adrenaline, but, uh, coming that close to one, that's like probably the most I've ever sort of felt terror. Yeah. I mean, there's, (laughs) there's plenty of things we like, and I, I don't know, maybe I'm missing, you know, the, the, I'll be over and there's people even we're working with who will be nervous. I usually just feel a thrill. Yeah. I am like, oh, here we are under the stars and night vision. There's lions around. Like, it's scary, but maybe Mm -hmm. I just don't have a healthy enough fear for it. Right. You know, uh, uh, I've been downrange for some, you know, bullets flying before and, you know, felt that cold chill, but... You know, I'm I'm not you know I'm not a combat veteran like some of the guys we work with, so that I I don't have some of that in my DNA. But uh, yeah, that moment is probably the one that like was the biggest sort of reality check moment. Cross yourself and run. Uh, is there danger in having an organization like yours with so much corruption? I mean, I imagine it's probably within the ranks of the government and all. It probably its tentacles are probably everywhere. Well, it's certainly improved in South Africa specifically since Zuma left and Ramaphosa's come in. That is, the, the corruption is, is improved. But you're right, it is everywhere. We have worked some with the Banyan Risk Group, which is a really high-end international security firm to do some education for us. I, I don't think, you know, we're, we're there's no specific threats that we are that wary of, but we are cautious. You know, we're cautious mm-hmm. when we post. We're cautious to not go around shouting that we're here to mm-hmm. stop poaching, you mm-hmm. know. Um absolutely you know somebody at some point will come after us or or will you know Mm. but i no i don't feel like we're in a lot of danger but i do think you take some very reasonable precautions Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. yeah we've had a couple moments where is that guy following us that guy looking are they just looking to steal passports or are they Mm -hmm. you know and then you know every country is different right you had incredible corruption recently in zimbabwe where literally you've got heads of state who are helping smuggle things you've got wow yeah so it's yeah, I mean, but there's also really, really good people on the ground over there. Right. You know, there's devoted people who give their life to this and care about animals. And yeah, I think we should be very grateful for those people and, and recognize that they're there, not just the, you know, corrupt lunatics. I'm looking for the questions that you have. Questions. Is there any questions purely in emoji? One is One of the questions that somebody asked was how you feel about the recent loosening of the anti-poaching laws in Botswana that was the way it was worded I don't know if that's so yeah there's there's currently a bit of a storm about anti-hunting laws and restrictions and it's 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 very politically charged we as an organization don't want to get too deep into this but you know there's there's certainly some very stark differences between what for example American media are saying what people on the ground are saying right including like some of the top elephant conservationists over there very pro big game hunting you know recognize the need and the the value of the money that comes in i mean i, I guess a couple of things i'd say is that one you know so Botswana last year this started to explode because they it, it got out that there were about 90 elephants killed in a national park there in a weekend right poached the reality of that 
is is way more complicated than how it was advertised. And let me be diplomatic here and careful about <laughs> how I present this. But basically, you can look at Yellowstone as a model to understand some of this. But pressure from the outside, community outside world, basically uh, uh, led bots wanted to start outlawing hunting. Right. Including elephant culling, hunting, you know, mm-hmm. all this. And hunting is a part of that ecosystem. Like I said, elephants are overcrowded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, say what you will about whether it should, whether it shouldn't, but just recognizing this reality. But then Botswana, for example, has a couple of problems. One is they don't have the revenue coming in. They also have an elephant overcrowding problem. Right. So in that specific case, they said, uh, or what seems to have happened, is that rather than figure out how to solve it, because they want it, they cave to the Western pressures, you know, mm-hmm. saying, no more hunting, don't do this, okay, okay, because they want to keep getting the money from the Western mm-hmm. NGOs, right? Mm-hmm. They don't want to piss them off. And then they sent their security home for a weekend because they said, now we have an overcrowding problem. Uh, Poachers come in and kill. Now they can fundraise off of we have a poaching problem. They can get more money from the Western NGOs. uh, So there's this sort of cycle that's happening there. And so what you're seeing now from several countries is some pushback against Western groups coming in telling us how to manage our wildlife. We're getting sick of it. We kept doing it. But it's like more difficult for us to just take the money. We're going to kind of do it our way. So they're hiring PR firms and other things so that they can have it both ways. They can get Mm. the money. Money, but they can also manage wildlife in the way that they need to. Now, again, like I'm not saying that there's two wrongs making a right here. I'm not saying, but I am recognizing that, you know, this is a part of wildlife management, right? right? It's uh, preservation versus conservation, for example. Now, say that you have an area where you're going to allow big game hunting and elephants have to be cold and you allow, you know, some wealthy Donnie Jr. Yeah, to, to come <laughs> over and give a $500,000 you know, pay for a $500,000 tag to kill an elephant right? because you've got too many elephants. Okay. So on the ground, you see why that's so valuable to them. We got too many elephants. We've got enough money to pay our staff for a year from one rich, you know, coming over. There's actually an excellent radio lab episode called the rhino hunter that I'd recommend people listen to helps show that there are two sides to this this coin. So the, the issue with that, and one of the things that edge is invested in, addressing in a really big way is a, is a program to study elephant genetics because so you used to have the big tuskers, right? The big, the, the elephants, the tusk go all the way to the ground mm-hmm. like Matt. So they've got a, a history of big tuskers in Kruger national park, as well as in the Maasai and Kenya, but there's very few of them left. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's seven with another, maybe 12 could be tuskers and mm-hmm. Kruger could be off about those numbers. And part of the reason is that when a big game hunter comes in, what do they want? biggest best trophy which you've now removed from the gene pool the biggest best expression of genes so we are uh, behind research that we're looking for more funding for right now which studies the elephant genetic map Uh, over multiple countries to one see where the big tusker gene is to see but also to just understand what you're removing from the gene pool when you do that right and if you're going to move elephants instead of shoot them for example you can't just move them that easily elephants have very specific genetics unique to the migratory patterns and their their elephants are very careful not to inbreed right um so, you know, so they move great distances so that there's no inbreeding. So, you know, if you are going to allow it, like, I think that this research that we're doing is, is, is something that's very necessary because we have lost the big Tuskers or we're, we're close to losing them. Right. I um, mean, it's not just about that, but that's a nice epitomic expression of we don't know what we're losing. Right. You know, when right. we allow for indiscriminate hunting. So financially, you can understand why it's a benefit and why it's, you know, to, to many to be necessary. And and then on the whole, look, the hunting community brings more money to the continent 
and to wildlife conservation in general than any other group, you know, interesting. you know, they're, they're just partly because they tend to be a group that likes to get out and appreciate the wild, partly because of things like this paying for tags. And obviously not all hunting in Africa is big game hunting. There's, there's, you know, hunting for antelope and things. And right. There's those who give the meat to the local communities and right. all of that. But I do think that we need to have a better sense of how this is happening if we are going to allow it to happen. Yeah. So again, it's such an interesting perspective. You just don't think about is because I think in the, like you were saying in the, the perception, it's just like white hunter in Africa, bad. Right. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah, we don't you, think about maybe they bring money. Maybe there are animals that need to be hunted. Maybe, or, or are overpopulated. Maybe there's just no other exploration of this topic other than a knee jerk reaction of like, I saw an elephant that was killed. That affects me emotionally. This is bad. Yeah. And I do. And by the way, I'm not saying I don't have an emotional reaction to that. Of course. Elephants are, are magnificent, but we are part of nature. We're part of that ecosystem. And we can't sort of, again, like come over that, that, that these countries are giving pushback. Stop telling us what we can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, and I would say if you're an NGO or if you're a person who goes over and say, don't do this, well, you better give them an alternative, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. the options are, are limited. So I'm all for, like I said, animal ambassadorships and other options that allow, you know, an elephant that would be cold to become an ambassador of the species, but it, it's just not that simple. And that's right. where like, we can't be imperialistic. So yeah, you are right now seeing some serious pushback. They're lobbying. These countries really want Trump to lift the ban. Uh, so he lifted the ban on uh, elephant and other big game import trophies. Then under pressure, he re- reinstated the ban. And now these countries are lobbying. Please lift the ban again. You know, so oh, interesting. Um, so again, like, I, 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 wait, so there's a ban on, the import of elephant trophies. So if you go into hunt, America, correct. Okay. And, and, many, and so they're asking for him to lift the ban so that they can conserve, conserve in the way that they, that they can manage this in a way that they feel is. Yeah. And, and for, and that they can make money off of it. Right. So, um, <laughs> So, yeah. So, and when I say they, I mean, I'm not trying to say everybody, but you are seeing pushback at the national level from several countries who are kind of saying, stop telling us what to do. Right. Here's what we're doing. So, you know, and that's where, or let's go over there and work with them, not mm-hmm. against them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they go over there with an instant get anything done. Mm-hmm. So I would say this research we're, we're behind, I think has a potential to help in a way that a lot of other groups come over and say, do this, don't mm-hmm. do this. Okay. Well, here's something we're offering. You know, we're going to, we're going to work at the level that this already exists. So in that way, we're more pragmatic, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I'm also, let let me just disclaim, I'm far from an expert in this. This comes from few conversations that I have when I'm over there and I don't want to definitely don't want to say I'm speaking for everybody over there says this, everybody we work with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do know that the way I hear it represented here, I'm (laughs) saying, well, you haven't talked to anybody over there. (laughs) She Um, always knows when hope, hope is here, folks. Everyone's like, is hope going to make an appearance on the podcast? Because she knows exactly when it's one hour. It, she's like, it's 59 minutes. And perfect. she's like, all right, I'm done listening to you two. We always ask this. I always ask the same two questions at the end of every podcast of my guests. What is your biggest defect of character that you have to kind of work against in your daily life? Hope. Stop Whoa. It. Okay. Uh, I know it's not an easy one. Well, you spring it on me. like I that. know. I love it. With- Almost no defects. I'm gonna have to do. Uh, the biggest character defect that I have to work against. Well, I mean, I guess there's there's personal and professional, right? Uh, so in terms of like running this organization, I, you know, I, I don't know. This is gonna sound egotistical to say I, I'm not a details person, so I can get like 
lost at the top level and mm. you know I need detail support but I, I wouldn't say that's a defect I personally I, I certainly ha- I tend towards addiction mm-hmm. um, which you know I see expressed in a lot of different things this is um, why you're not you don't have the healthy sense of fear interesting uh, I haven't drawn that connection but it's very common it? they always say you can't scare an alcoholic well, I don't think I... Not that you're an alcoholic. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a, I think if you're like an adrenaline junkie, yeah. it, they're all very much related. Adrenaline junkies and ad- addictive personalities. And I've, I've found, just from my own observation, I would say that that characteristic is very... Of being kind of stupidly fearless. Yeah. Is when you say something like, oh, I tend towards like being addictive, that I would say that's... Those two things are very much related a lot of the time interesting uh well i I i'm not an expert that's just my opinion from observing hundreds and thousands of addicts over time right i I can see that being true so yeah i mean i I would say that that's certainly something that i don't specifically mean like oh you know substances this and that but just that it it's something that that manifests in sort of not not finding balance in certain things Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm -hmm. uh and then uh oh gosh i i don't know i'm i'm incredibly disorganized sometimes mm-hmm. and I can be, you know, very manically focused on something to the detriment of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe that's as, as soul bearing as I want to get on of course. without any, forethought. what's your greatest strength? This is where we end on the positive Ooh, note. Greatest strength. Well, I, I, I will speak only in regards to building, you know, something that has professional bearing and, and building a nonprofit. I think my greatest strength is just that, uh, I have a lot of energy to put in this. I get up at 3.30 a.m. and I'm down. You know, I just never stop pushing on it, mm-hmm. which uh, what I'm finding is in building an organization, like starting any business, that's one of the greatest assets you can bring to the table is just constant pressure. And, you know, you, you're you're the champion. And everybody else, you know, I'm a leader now. There's other people. We have an incredible team of, of people who are working with us now, like mm-hmm. really, really great people. And I can see that they sort of take cues from the energy that I put into it. So it's not something that I, I it comes from the passion and not wanting to disappoint people, but mm-hmm. it's not something that I have a lot of discernment in applying, but it's just there. So I, I certainly know that that's a value at the top, but, and that's probably as, as egotistical as I'll get with. <laughs> thought, so. Thank you. And I just want to reiterate that I was not implying that you were an alcoholic. I don't. I don't know <laughs> about like I, your substances. So, no, so I, I just don't want to. I don't. I just mean addictive personalities in general. And like you said, they can manifest even in work. Sure. Like I'm. I don't drink anymore, but I'm addictive in my behavior when it comes to work. 100%. I can be very manic, like obsessively focused, and not. Meanwhile, my life around me will fall apart a little bit. Yeah. So I'm very much that way with work. And I think that, you know, we, we can have a whole other hour talking about, you know, addiction, but it, it, it's like whack-a-mole. Yeah. It, well, it <laughs> is, but I also think that, uh, that addiction has been given an unfair, um, sort of binary value. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like either, no, it, it manifests in a whole lot of ways. It oh yeah. Be, you know, the number two at McDonald's, it can be binge watching shows and it can be exercise. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, and I don't think it's all bad. I I always say too. I always I have this kind of thought that what would we have a lot of the great arts artists of our time had we had medication for like bipolar disorder back then? For I sure. wonder. Yeah. Because I think it is a lot of them. If you look back, well, my, one of my greatest idols, Michael Crichton, uh, 
I think he's one of the greatest geniuses of our time. He's also married five times. Right. Or divorced five times, whichever it was. Right. <laughs> so, you know, there, there is a cost to, there is a cost to these qualities, some, but, um, yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that next time. All right. Well, I would love to have you back and hear about what's going on and keep us updated. And where can we support your organization? Yeah. So, um, you know, you can find us online, ecodefensegroup.org. We're at ecodefensegroup on all social media platforms. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can, you can see ways to donate, ways to get involved, t-shirts you can buy. Uh, this shirt saved a rhino shirt. Do you have like a monthly subscription? We have on our website. If you click give today, then you can uh, uh, choose to make your contribution monthly. We It's huge win beneath our wings when you do that. I think that's the one I need to sign up for. Yeah, we'd love it. I mean, everything that lets us know, you know, gives us some guarantee of, of, of what comes Of course, next yeah. And then, you know, we've got some pretty cool initiatives. We didn't even talk about it, but we just brought the uh, uh, one of the most famous skydivers in the world, Red Bull. Air Force mm-hmm. skydiver Jeff Provenzano just came over, jumped out of a hot air balloon on a bunch of rhinos, putting out a little video about that. And his little squirrel suit. Yeah. He uh, <laughs> sounds like a rocket when he was coming down. But he's, um, yeah, that was a whole thing. And then you can go listen to our podcast, the Edge Conservation Podcast, which will hook back into our stuff. So um, uh, I want to yeah. go over. Uh, you're more than welcome to come over. We'd love to have you. I think you should go over there and do some uh, some episodes with people on the ground. That would be amazing. Yeah. And just some, it would be a great piece to write. Absolutely. I mean, it was just, I, I'm surprised that you didn't get more coverage when the Rangers were here, but I, do, I just don't think many people are aware. There's so much to, there's so much, there's just so much noise. Yeah. You know, well, we're, we're growing, you know, in t- bo- both in terms of our public image and, you know, which we're, which we're careful about. We don't throw it all out there, but, right. uh, your, your pal Joe Rogan has tweeted about us a couple of times, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've got the eyes of some interesting people, but we also manage it carefully. Um, with the Rangers, we put out a little press release. Uh, we didn't have a, we have a PR person now. We didn't then, but I don't know that it was something we, you know, we didn't really want to advertise it in a huge way. Right. We want them to get a lot of credit. Right. But as far as them, you know, that was an interesting thing for us. Like, all right, how much do we expose this? Right. And, uh, we're still kind of navigating that, but that, but I think our community efforts with the photography clubs, which is an awesome initiative, I'm so excited about now. Uh, we're hoping to get Leica involved and mm-hmm. some other groups. Um, that's something we can advertise all day long. Right. Red Bull guy jumping out, and then when we, you know, we're kind of a little bit like remember the first X Men movie when he says, you know, the above ground is the school, but below ground is an entirely different matter. Mm-hmm. And he takes Wolverine down. That's kind mm-hmm. of it's kind of mm-hmm. how we are. We have the school up top, and then below ground. Yeah, we're doing some stuff that maybe we can't uh, advertise as much. But uh, anyway, look, there's lots. We would love to have you over. I think you should pitch the story. I think you should come over, uh, enjoy some brise, and uh, have some adventures of your own. Yeah. Thank you for coming and talking about this. And thank you for your work. It is so important. And um, I think this conversation, if anything else, it, it you gave us a lot of resources to also go explore. Because now I'm now I'm down the rabbit hole. I keep digging and yeah. join us. This is not a, uh, is a conservation is a global effort. Yeah, it's so cool. Thank you. It's time for the weekly check in with Bridget and cousin Maggie. We are recording. Is this just going to be the check in? That's all. Bridget making mouth noises. Mouth noises. She's distracted at the moment. Somebody wrote about being politically homeless, and I just got sent. How dare they?
All right, we'll put it aside for the moment. How dare you people who are not as lazy as I am? <laughs> How, dare How dare you be productive? <laughs> How dare you productive people jumping on my wheelhouse while I lay around doing interviews with famous people? How dare you? I just, I don't have the hot takes in me anymore. <laughs> Are you all burned out after like three months? <laughs> <laughs> How have people been doing this for like years? When I was interviewing Mitchell today, he said, when when did you start writing, you know, for money uh-huh. online? And I was like, 2015. <laughs> and he's been doing it since he was He's 27, but he's been doing it for Vice since he was like 20. Wow. This is Mitchell. Sunderland. Sunderland. So mm-hmm. he'll, he'll be coming out in a few weeks. But he's a youngin, and yeah, we were talking about, I've basically really only been getting dragged online for like three years. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm already like, I've had enough. You're still a newbie. I'm basically not even a junior in high school. Oh. On the online on the online world. That's adorable. It's sad but true. No wonder everyone hates me. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of you in high school where you just like partied like a senior when ever since you were a sophomore. Ever since I was a freshman. Uh-huh. And then everyone was like, "Who is this bitch? I hate her." Running all our parties. Who is she? Running the keg? Running the keg. That's right. Do you remember that? When so I went Bridget with your sister. I, Bridget and I. I was a sophomore. Well, you, was oh, that you were, was the first adventure we ever <laughs> went on. Galore. I was, that was, <laughs> our turns galore was the first. It was the first. <laughs> we just didn't know where we were going. Well, apparently. okay. So we were going to visit my sister in college. I was a sophomore in high school and Bridget was a senior. And you were driving your little stick shift car. Because and I come from the generation that knows how to do that. Right. But we went to, we like just were idiots and driving. <laughs> we were listening to music and having a grand old we time. We were and then realized we were headed in the wrong direction. <laughs> I was like, we're at URI. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I realized the ocean was on the wrong side and we were heading south when we should be heading north. And you were like, what? Where are we? We should be <laughs> in Kingston. What's going on? So, well, I also thought your little cottage that you guys went to every single summer was in Maine <laughs> and found out it was like uh, literally a half hour away <laughs> from where I live. Anyway, we go, it, but a few weeks, like the week before, I had gone to a party with Bridget. It was like a townie party. <laughs> And I had never been to one, I don't think. It was like... You're you, so sheltered. I know, so sheltered. Towny parties are the best. And so you took me to one, and we were in like somebody's basement, and we they were... And this guy just over and over again kept repeating, I've been drinking since the second oh, grade. Oh, God, that was I've the greatest been party since the ever. Grade. And it was just like the refrain of the night was, I've been, I've been drinking, drinking since, since the second, second grade. grade. And so then we go to this college party <laughs> <laughs> that my sister, who's like a freshman in college, takes us to. And at some point in the night, Bridget winds up on the keg. 
I was I was pouring everyone's beers. And was pouring the beers and was like, I've been drinking since the second grade. <laughs> I've been bumping since the second grade. And then she became known as like, they were like, oh, yeah, your cousin. Wasn't she the girl who was running the keg last night? <laughs> Isn't she the girl that's been drinking since the second grade? <laughs> She became a little bit infamous in my sister's circle of friends. I believe I did a keg stand that night, too. <laughs> Can't be quite sure. Oh, uh, yeah. That was our first ever road trip. Oh, God. I still use that phrase to this I day. I know. Me, too. It's quite catchy. I've been drinking since the second grade. I've been bumping since the second grade. <laughs> God bless the townies uh-huh. of America. Uh-huh. Townies of America unite. <laughs> we will take our country back. <laughs> I think they did, I think actually. They did too. The last I election. I think, that, think that's MAGA. <laughs> <laughs> Make townies great again. Uh-huh. <laughs> I've been drinking since the I've second been, grade. We'll be I've their been rallying been. cry. <laughs> that should be That should be their new slogan. Oh, yeah. Oh gosh. Good times. <laughs> God, Good we were young times. too. I must have been like eight. I was fifteen. Oh, so I was like no, seventeen. Yeah, I was a sophomore. I was a sophomore. I was fifteen. I don't know. I was I had my license yet. Yeah, you were. You were a senior, but you turn eighteen when? No, in November. In November. So I think I it was just before turned. November. I think we went. Oh in yeah, because like we went October. for her birthday. So you or, went. Or, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. Right. Right when she first started. I think it was her birthday. Yeah. So it was like. Or it was around then. It was, yeah, it you was were 17 fall. and I was 15. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I pretty much you were had run in the keg. <laughs> I pretty much at a party where there were like seniors there. I pretty much had been drinking since the second You grade really at that had point. been. You had much more experience than any of those people at that party. Oh, I can man. pretty much guarantee. Freshmen in college. When I went to college my freshman year, I was like, this is fucking amateur hour. <laughs> Jesus. I'd been you drinking. People have never done your laundry. And they never drank really because you know they had parents that watched them, uh-huh. and it was it was embarrassing. It was yeah. Well, you guys would like steal your dad's car before you had your license. Yeah, when you were like fifteen, and would go. I was I was drinking and driving before I could legally drive, drive. <laughs> let alone drink. <laughs> Years before I could drink. Yeah, we would take it in the middle of the night and, and go, go to, to townie parties. Go to townie parties. I was home in bed asleep while my God, parents kept a close eye on I us. Have, uh, my sister and I still die laughing at like how we would put the car in neutral and then push it so that it didn't make any noise out of the driveway and have to like jump in it and start it. Oh my God. Like throw, throw it into drive and start it once we got it far enough away from the house. I don't know. It's a miracle we lived. I know. And wasn't our other cousin always with you guys? And she was like, and your sister was like 13. None of us had any parents. And she, you, they were both like 13 years old and sometimes they would drive, wouldn't they? Or was it always (laughs) you driving? No. It was pretty much me. It was pretty much always Bridget. (laughs) The instigator. I corrupted a lot of people. (laughs) But the good news is, I remember one time, well, now I'm inspiring everyone to get sober, Uh but it's only natural because I was the one that got them all drunk and high. Uh But (laughs) one time I showed up in Vegas 
And I walked into this hotel room and I was with my best friend from high school and we walked into this hotel room and the guys in the hotel are like, well, 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 if it isn't the girl who got me high for the first time, (laughs) I didn't even remember it. I was like, how many people did I corrupt out there? You got a lot of people high for the first time. I can guarantee you. I would love to see a show of hands as to who got high their first time with you. Because I'm pretty much sure it's (laughs) many hundreds of people. I had this little bat, like a little one hit. Um, they you know the little fake metal ones that look that like, look cigarettes. like cigarettes. Yeah, and I was obsessed with it, and I called it Pinchy, <laughs> and, and I would drop it, and he always was dropping it because I was always drunk, and I would be like Pinchy, 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 <laughs> and it would just be on the floor. But no matter where I was, I'd have this overdramatic reaction to dropping Pinchy. Oh, and yes. that was another one that, that went stuck. on for years. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when I miss smoking weed, it's the stuff like that it's that like, I miss the most. Sometimes she'll still cry. <laughs> I remember one time we were on this deck and I dropped it. And it tra- <laughs> this is when it started, though, the pinchy. Uh-huh. Is because it fell through the cracks of the deck down <laughs> underneath the deck, and it took me like two hours to find it. And I was down there just laughing my butt off <laughs> with my friend searching for Pinchy. I finally found it. I love how if you thought you called enough to it that it would reappear Pinche? in front of you. Pinchy! 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 We have the dumbest jokes, and I apologize for anyone listening, but now you're in on all of our inside jokes. I've been drinking since the second grade. Our tards galore. I've been drinking since the second grade. Pinche? Pinche! (laughs) (laughs) I really miss that thing. Uh, If I ever start smoking weed again, it's going to be just for that reason alone. So I can hopelessly search for my long lost pigeon <laughs> every party I go to. <laughs> it was just an ongoing theme. Well, guys, that's all we have for you tonight. I hope you enjoyed our, our trip down, <laughs> memory, trip down lane. memory lane, <laughs> which is frankly quite a miracle. I have a memory at all. Right. We'd like to thank our sponsor this week, BridgetFetacy.com. <laughs> I feel like Kanye right now. (laughs) Tune in next week for another riveting episode that will change your life, help you get out of your own way, and solve all the world's problems. I want to thank our composer, Jared Elias, my co-producer and cousin, Maggie, and all of you out there listening. This has been Walk-In's Welcome with Bridget Phetasy. I'm Bridget Phetasy, and you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) The dumbest one. (laughs)